David Cooks, author, motivational speaker, international basketball coach, and an all-around amazing guy. Actually, as I've told him many times before, he's one of a few heroes in my life. Along with my family, I've been blessed to share life with you, David, for almost 40 years now. Incredible as that is. So I'm really grateful to have this chance to converse with you uh, and our listeners on the critically important topic of finding purpose, especially finding purpose in the midst of adversity. And it's fair to say that you know a thing or two about adversity, having gone from a stud athlete to life in a wheelchair at age 15. I was there. I witnessed it. So along with my big brothers, Steve and Scott, I'm eager to drill deeper on a few concepts taken directly from your outstanding book uh, and to ask you a few personal questions. The intent here isn't to do a book summary, of course. Our listeners will all want to read Getting Undressed from cover to cover. I can attest to that. But this is um, instead um, intended to be just an intimate conversation between us and you, the author, David, and I can't think of a better starting point than to ask about the name of the book itself. Everybody gets undressed daily. That's a powerful word picture, but can you recap for our listeners what getting undressed means to you, David, and share an example of people undressing and getting dressed and the way you use those terms? So for me on the personal level, um, getting undressed was about um, reclaiming my independence. And so a quick story, I was, I was uh, 15 years old, had a spinal aneurysm, ended up a T6 paraplegic, and so I am in the rehab center, and I, they taught me how to get dressed. And I was one night, I'm sitting by myself in the room, and the nurses couldn't come in to help me, and so I had to figure out that night how to get myself undressed. And it was a struggle because I didn't know what to do or how to do that. I hadn't done that before. But it was, it was pivotal that I did that because if I wanted to go home, and reclaim my independence at home, I had to learn how to do that right then and there. And it took me a little over an hour, hour and a half or so to figure it out, but I got it done. And so for me, getting undressed was about a new beginning. It was about uh, reclaiming some independence. Everybody gets undressed at least once a day. And when we do that, the clothes that we put on is an indication about where we're heading. No one really talks about the clothes you put in the, in the, in the dirty pantry. That was yesterday's news. And so as we get dressed every day, we're rebranding ourselves. We're starting over. You know, when I came here today, I put on some different clothes uh, because I was going to another place. And so that's what I mean by getting undressed and rebranding. Um, I think that um, there's, there's a particular story. Someone had gotten the book and read the book, and uh, this lady had been struggling with smoking for 35 years. She smoked two packs a day. And she sent me a text. She, it, my book came out in August. She decided in June that it was time to stop smoking. She really struggled with that for a couple of months. She got my book in August and she felt so inspired that she has not picked up a cigarette since. She rebranded herself because she saw that there was an opportunity to move forward from a very difficult situation. That to me is the ultimate getting undressed story of a person who was dealing with something that was a real struggle for them. And somehow or another, they were inspired enough to change clothes. She put the cigarette clothes down and put on a new set of clothes and move forward. To me, that's, that's, that's the best rebranding story I could come up with. And I got a chance to meet her. I said, I have to meet you. She's local. 
and I had breakfast with her uh, earlier this year. I said, I just need to meet you to make sure this is real. And it was real. You know, most people wouldn't expect such an upbeat reply to Jim's question. And that's one thing we've always loved about your focus on abilities, not on disabilities. Still, overcoming obstacles is a critical component to purposeful living. And in your book, Getting Undressed, you masterfully deal with obstacles from a variety of angles. Just to pick one, let's talk about the obstacle of rejection. Tell us more about your reflect, regroup, relaunch approach. For example, your account of rereading Winkler's email after the Marquette high firing was really chilling. Can you expand on that process? Perhaps sharing examples of how it helped you with other obstacles beyond rejection? You know, one of the things that I like to do, uh, and I think something we, we all should do and we don't do enough of, is, is this something I call reflect, regroup, and relaunch. And by that I mean, you know, when you're dealing with adversity or you're dealing with some uh, obstacle that you need to overcome, or specifically with something that's been very disappointing for you, uh, something tragic, you know, take a moment to first of all reflect. And by reflect, I mean you take a look at the circumstances surrounding your situation. And you take a moment to see if there's anything that you can glean from that, that you can grow from. One of the purposes of the book is to get people from asking the question why to asking the questions of how can I grow, how can I learn, how can I serve. And that is part of the process of Reflect, Regroup, Relaunch. So uh, when, I lost, when, I, when I got uh, fired from coaching basketball, uh, it caught me off guard. And so, you know, I did, <laughs> and so I didn't know what to do. And I, I, I was confused. I didn't have any direction. So I had to just take a moment and just think about things for a minute. Where am I? What did I do? What did I do well? What didn't I do so well? Are there things I can do different? Because I'm, my plan is to continue to do what I do, but it won't be at this venue. And so after I've had a moment to reflect and put my thoughts together, um, realizing that I still had stuff left in the tank, I had some gas left in the tank, now I've got to get myself back together. I've got to get myself back up off the ground and, and change my mindset from, okay, what's going on to where am I going next? And that leads to the relaunch. So you reflect on who you are, what, you, what you've done, the accomplishments, the difficulties. Is there a lesson to learn from this? How can, I, how can I put this in my recipe for success? How can I put this in my recipe for purpose? And move forward with that, knowing that my journey's not done. And that's what I mean by reflect, regroup, relaunch. That's what, and I, I think we all have to do that, or we all should do that periodically in our lives as we're dealing with things. Because the chance to learn and grow and and also, you get yourself re-energized. Uh, what I did, what I did uh, in reference to the, the, the email, I went back and I began to assess the good things that I had done as a coach. I didn't get everything right, so I, I, I'm, I'm good with that. I didn't make all the right decisions all the time. But there were some good things that I had done. And so what I wanted to do was focus on those, and I found where other people affirmed some of the things that I had done well. And that, get, that built me back up. Because when you're dealing with um, getting fired or, or something that's d- tragic, it knocks you down. Sure. It, deflate, it can deflate you. And so you need to find ways to build yourself back up. And that's what I was able to do with that, and, and thus the, re, the reflect, re, regroup, and relaunch concept. David, let me ask you a follow-up question on rejection. When dealing with rejection, 
how do you move forward without allowing that seed of bitterness to implant itself and to rear its ugly head? Well, let me, let me say a couple of things about rejection and lay the foundation of how I understand rejection for me personally. Um, you're never as bad as rejection is saying you are, but you're never quite as good as you think you are either. So you're somewhere in the middle of that reality. Now, if you understand purpose, it doesn't allow for you to stay in a place of bitterness long because your circumstances may have been orchestrated to move you to the next place along your purpose. Once you identify that, it removes the bitterness that you have because now you understand that there was a purpose behind it. Once you get that, it's, it's almost like, um, and, and I, I had to go through this myself because I was angry and upset with the athletic director and the school administration. But once I realized that I was no longer supposed to be there because I was supposed to move on, it changed everything. And I became grateful for the opportunity that I had been given. And gratitude and anger cannot coexist. That's impossible. You're going to be one or the other. And once I became grateful and understood that the people that um, I thought had done me wrong were actually helping me to move in the direction that I was supposed to go, it changed everything. I never would have coached college basketball again had I stayed angry. I would have not done USA basketball in Europe had I stayed angry. I would not have a book had I stayed angry. That helped move me forward. And so one of the mistakes that I think we have with rejection is that um, we, stay, we stay rejected. And you know what rejection should do? It's like when you, get, when you fire a, a bullet from a gun, there's a trajectory. It's taking you somewhere. You actually were fired forward. And you, once you understand that, it changes everything. It makes your ability to reflect, regroup, and relaunch much clearer because you, you don't have the, the, the bitterness and the anger and, and those other feelings. You're not, you're not housing them anymore. It's almost, it's very analogous to um, uh, Joseph needed Potiphar's wife in order for him to ultimately run all of Egypt. He needed her. Was that, was that a comfortable situation? Absolutely not. Was it just? Absolutely not. Was it purposeful? Absolutely so. David, you learned, in hindsight, that your relationship with Evan answered the question of why regarding your surprising job transition, that the payback eventually far exceeded the pay cut. I love that. However, you didn't know there would be an Evan before you accepted the Fairfield coaching job. The fact that, you know, money does matter generated tension. Let's face it, it's, it's not just about finding purpose, but also about funding purpose. What advice do you have for those weighing the risk-reward spectrum when purpose conflicts with financial security? Wow. Well, you know, I will start off by saying this, that there's a cost associated with you following purpose. We all need to understand that. The amount that you're willing to sacrifice is an indication of the value of your purpose. Okay? 
So money does matter, but not at the expense of your purpose. Because purpose will be fulfilling. And at the end of purpose, whatever your need are, needs are or need is, it will be met. So, for, so when I took a 70% pay cut to leave corporate America to follow what I thought I was supposed to do, I wasn't concerned about the money. I was concerned about making sure I was doing what I was supposed to do because I thought the money would come if I did that. Does that make sense? And so uh, for people who are conflicted, um, understand that fulfilling purpose leaves you without a need. Does that make sense? Fulfilling purpose leaves you without need because you're fulfilled at that point. And then you figure the rest of that out. You know, and so money is important, absolutely. But we never, we should never pursue money. We should pursue purpose. Because if we pursue purpose, everything else will be added to you. So, um, so that's a real decision. Uh, that's really where the rubber meets the road sometime. And uh, I would challenge people to not let money ever be a reason for you not fulfilling what you're supposed to be doing. Don't ever let that be a reason. Um, and understand there's sacrifice that goes along with following your, your, your passions and, and, and your purpose. Um, you know, when I launched out to do this with the book and everything, I, I didn't have a job. I left Marquette High School without, without any income. Um, but I thought this is what I was supposed to do. Um, so what did I do? I made some adjustments along the way um, in order to continue to do what I thought I was supposed to do. And I'm beginning now to see the, um, uh, pay, the payoff, for lack of a better word, um, to see the benefit from planting seeds of sacrifice a, a few years back. That's part of the process. That's really part of the process. I can't tell you how much money you will get, but you will get what you need. And just understand that. And you, will, and you may get be up, be, beyond your need, too, so that you can... Um, you can serve others with it. You know, I'm a big believer that if, if it can go through you, God can get it to you. But if you hold on to it, you may not get that. Because serving is about going through you to others. So I'm not holding on to this is for somebody else. This is for somebody else. I just received something. This must be for somebody else as well. Because purpose is always bigger than you. It's not, purpose is never about you. It's about somebody else. It's always about somebody else. You have a purpose to fulfill, but it's not for you. It's for it's for the people at the end of your journey that you've had to that you've had to touch through, through the process. If, if, you know, does, that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, it does. The payback can exceed the pay cut. So ultimately, it's not about the money. But I fear it's a concept our listeners could easily misconstrue. It reminds me of a book: "Do what you love, and the money will follow." But David. I don't think that's specifically what I hear you saying, is it? Right, because you can do what you love and not be in your purpose. That's right. You can be fishing. I could be fishing right now, all right? And you know I love to fish. I love to fish. But that is not my purpose. That's my hobby. My purpose is connecting with people and hopefully changing their lives. Once you do that, like you said, you know, um, the reward will come. And whatever... um, form that is, whether that's financial, whether that's favor, whether that's someone serving you, it will come back. 
it really will come back. David, you've said ability will get you there, character will keep you there, but who you are will stay with others long after you're gone. It sounds like you're making a distinction between human beings and human doings, so to speak. Is that accurate? Yes. Um, most people forget what you can do. You know, and you can't always do what you've done. Life has a way of changing that. But who you are will stay with people forever. They will remember that guy was a nice guy or that gal was a nice gal or he was a jerk or, he, you know. And so um, your ability will open can get you in the door because you've got, you know, certain skills. But but how you treat people, how you serve people, the way you go about things, that's what people will remember. And that's what will stay long after you're gone. Long after I left Marquette High or left GE Capital, my imprint was still there. And the question is, what will people see in the footsteps that you leave behind? What, where will your footsteps take people as they move forward? And that's the question I think that we have to ask. That's part of the reflection part of the Reflect, Regroup, Relaunch. Take a real look at, and see where you are and see where, see where your steps are leading. Because if I only had your set of footprints to follow, where would it take me? Where would it take me? David, Your mention of footsteps in the context of legacy reminds me of how our children, they tend to follow in the footsteps we try to cover up. Like it or not, intentional or not, we are daily shaping our legacy, aren't we? Well, you said something very interesting, that we try to cover up footsteps. And I think that's a mistake. I I mentioned in the book that you're not going to be successful at everything you do in life. And so to have... To have your steps ordered doesn't mean that they're necessarily always straight. You may have some curves in the road, but eventually you're getting to the end game. And so it's important that we don't throw away the bad things, that we don't discard the negative things, but that we learn how to put them in the recipe. All right. And so that we can learn from them. And again, we're going from how can I learn, grow and serve? And everything can be used for the benefit of not only yourself, but for someone else. Everything, even the bad stuff. We don't like to talk about that. Nobody likes to talk about that. And that's okay. I mean, I get that, but I don't get that. Um, Because some of the mistakes that you've made, that we all have made, help us to grow because we're not going to make that mistake again. And part of us becoming who we are and fulfilling our purpose is that along the way, we made some mistakes, and we realized, you know something? That's not a part of what I should do. I've got to discard that. That's part of the reflection part again. That doesn't fit into what I think my overall purpose is. I can't do that anymore. And it's okay to talk about those things. Because it's the, because, because it's the human experience. The human experience is pretty much the same for everybody. And if we discard, discard that and don't, don't, don't value that, then we're not going to be able to serve people where they are. One of the things I talk about in the book is meeting people right where they are. And a lot of times that's not in the best place. But you have something for them to get them out of that place. And that's that purpose-driven life again. Ah, there's that word, legacy. You begin and wrap up your book talking about your father's legacy. How would you compare and contrast your dash impact with your father's dash impact? Wow. 
I think that my um, my dad's impact, um, I'm still discovering as I begin to fulfill my purpose and do the things that I do. It's interesting now, uh, there are people who I run into who worked with my dad and remember my dad, and some of the things they say about him are amazing to me. He was the nicest man I ever met. He never had a, a bad word to say about anyone. You know, I was like, my dad? You know, and, <laughs> and not that, because um, you you're not with them all the time. You're not with them on the job. You're not with them when they're working and doing those things. So you don't know how they're interacting with others. Um, the, there's three things that my parents taught us growing up. The first thing was to be grateful. We didn't have a lot growing up, but we were never allowed to complain about what we didn't have. That's probably why I focused on my abilities versus what I could not do. So we had to be grateful. We had to learn to be grateful. And when, when gratitude um, fuels what you love to do, it changes everything. So be grateful. They always taught us to be kind. We talked about this coming in today. You can never be too kind to anyone. You can never be that way. And so they always taught us to be kind. And it was interesting to watch now as you look back, um, coming from where they were in the South and all the, all the difficult times that uh, African Americans had there, but their love for everybody. We saw that. Now, we saw that in our home, at church, wherever we went. And we saw that their ability to be grateful for what we had and to be kind was, was remarkable. The last thing that they taught us was you can't make excuses and you need to be accountable for what you do. That in life, it's going to be difficult. They taught, they taught us about an umbrella. I love to talk about an umbrella because the umbrella, it allows for you to protect yourself in the storms of life. And the storms are coming. And you can either complain about them or you, or you can get wet, have to go back and get dressed, or you can get an umbrella and learn to navigate through these things without excuse, without finding fault, because we're going to stay grateful and we're going to stay kind. That's what I know. That's, that's part of the legacy that I think my, my parents left for, for us. For me, I think um, as, I, as I try to fulfill purpose, um, I'm hoping that people will understand how to hope against hope, how to believe when it doesn't seem like there's a reason to. Um, how to keep going and not stopping, um, how to celebrate the little things in life, um, because you don't always get huge victories. You know, life is full of, 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 of wins and losses, and how you can best uh, learn how to find a win in every situation, because we all can win in every situation. And to get people to find that, if I, if I can help people do that, then I'm good that I'm really good. You know, something subtle but powerful just happened. Scott asked you about your dad's legacy, and your answer was about your dad and your mom, which is really cool. You make it clear that you're a man of faith, and you've endured major challenges. How do you reconcile bad circumstances with a good God? Yeah, well, let, let, let's talk about this for a moment. And so um, as you, you know, it's easy when you get what you want. It's easy when you get what you want, when you get the answer that you want. The question is, 
Is God enough when you don't get the answer you want? Is he enough? And that's the question we're faced with. When you're not getting the response you want, or you're not, and it's not moving in the direction that you want it to move, will we be like the man who came to Bethesda for 38 consecutive years and was disappointed each of the 38 years because when the angel stirred the water, he couldn't get in and he didn't have nobody to help him, but he kept coming back. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of tenacity to deal with 37 consecutive years of disappointment, being in the right place, being in the place of blessing, being in the place of miracle, but to still come back? Because in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, the fulfillment of the law came walking down that down that pool and touched that man. But he didn't leave his place because he had a relationship. He was covenantly driven. And I think that's a challenge for all of us is to find how we can move forward. When things don't look like they would be what we think God would have us have. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's a must thing that we have to do. I didn't say it was I didn't say it was impossible. I said it was not easy. But you can do it and you can find peace because ultimately, as you deal with purpose and as you deal with conflict, as you deal with obstacles, you want to find peace in that situation. You want to find peace in that moment because you can live with that. Now, one of the principles to succeeding and beating adversity is to live it one day at a time. We hear that all the time, but that's really the truth because we don't have anything else other than that day. If you can learn to, to not focus on everything else, but trying to win that one day, it changes how you can overcome. Coach K is a living legend. How did that time working at his side impact your life, David? Coach Case had a remarkable impact on my life. Um, obviously, from a basketball standpoint, um, the relationship I have with him and having had the chance to work there uh, put me on a, on a much different stage from a basketball perspective throughout the country. Um, on a personal level, um, the fact that um, he actually took the time to get to know me and didn't have to do that, this goes back to what we're talking about is the intentionality. Those little things make a difference. When I went to see him uh, in business school, he didn't know me, and he didn't have to take the time to sit down and talk to me. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And, and that changed my life because I was like, wow, you know, this is Coach K. And I'm just a guy from Milwaukee in a wheelchair trying to get an MBA, and I want to help the team out. He took the time to do that. And then, and then he started to invest in me as a coach and as a person. And I was able to observe a lot of the things that he did um, and the importance of detail and communication and relationship building. The greatest thing that I thought Coach K had that, that I've been gifted with as well is connectivity. I think people underestimate the ability to connect with others and how that can lead you to impact their lives. He, his is just remarkable. 
that, that gift that he's got in that area is remarkable. And that's probably the greatest thing um, that I have uh, gleaned from him over the years. I mean, super competitive, um, but his ability, one of the reasons that he's been successful on so many levels in my mind and why NBA guys like him and Olympic guys like him, he's, con- he's sincerely concerned about their well-being. Every player that comes through his door, he wants the best for them, and they can feel that, and he really wants that. And that's what we were talking about earlier. When people really know you care, it's over. They'll run through the wall for you. They will run through a wall for you because they, they know that you care. And that, to me, um, is one of the biggest things I learned. The, the, the other thing Coach K said to me that I always remember when I got my first head coaching job, he said, you need to be you because you're really good at that. I said, what? Don't try to be somebody else. You're a really good you, so make sure you stay who you are. And that has stuck with me for a long time. You know, David, it's almost as if Coach K set you on a trajectory to pay it forward. And it's clear his investment in you effectively launched your coaching career. What impact do you think you've had on your own players' lives? Well, I, I think the players would probably say a couple things. They, they'd probably say I was tough, but I was fair. Um, and that I tried to treat everybody the same. Um, I think they also will say um, that I was consistent with them, how I lived, how I communicated, um, that they didn't have to worry about where I stood and where they stood, that they knew that this is Cook's and this is what's going to, this is, this is what you're going to get. And so I think that's what they would say. Um, I think they would probably say uh, that Cooks has a good time and enjoys what he does, that there's energy there, there's enthusiasm, there's fun, and that we had a good time. Um, and that he, like I said, that, that um, as a coach, I was tough, I was demanding, I wasn't demeaning, um, but I was fair. And I think uh, sometime in life, People want to be treated equally, and I think that's a mistake. I think you want to be treated fairly. And one of the things I tried to do was, was with each of the players that came across my path, I tried to treat them fairly. And that's different than equally um, because it's hard to treat people equal. I have to treat you fairly based on what I know about you, what your needs are, and that's what I tried to do with my players, and I think that's what they would say. Now that I think about it, I've seen firsthand, David, how your impact extended beyond just your players. I recall when I was coaching a fifth and sixth grade boys basketball team, which one of my sons was playing on, and you allowed us to come and see one of your practices. Right, right, right. And the boys were just overwhelmed at the energy level of your players and how they were performing. And even in the midst of a busy practice schedule that you had, you took the time to come over and to talk to the kids and to address them. And the awe that they had in the fact that you would spend that time talking with them, it had a significant impact on them and how we practice going forward and the serious nature at which they really um, understood what it would take to get to a higher level of basketball. So who really knows the total impact you've made on those guys, some of which went on to play at much higher level of basketball? Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing about 
Um, and I forgot about you coming to the practice. Um, and it's interesting how many things I don't remember doing because you don't do them to remember them. You do them in the moment because it's the thing to do. And I always wanted people to feel welcome in my gyms. You know, so I would take the time. You know, I wasn't so important and so busy. It takes five minutes to introduce myself to the whole team. And I'm there to practice for two hours. So doing those things, and you do them because it's the right thing to do. And not because you remember doing them. Um, And then this is, when you talk about legacy, these are the kind of things that come back. And you're like, wow, I I don't remember doing that. I didn't know I didn't know that that had that impact because I was just doing it because it was the right thing to do at the moment, you know. And so um, I think that's pretty uh, that's a pretty cool thing. That's a pretty cool thing. David, allow me to go off topic for a second. You talk about people clumsily uh, holding doors open for you. What advice do you have for well-intentioned people who desire to help but are afraid to offend? I think one of the things that uh, people who serve and give need to understand is that you can't you can't uh, necessarily predict how the person will respond who you're trying to help. That's not on you. It's your responsibility to serve and to and to help. If they don't receive it, it's not personal. They may not be in a place where they're ready to receive that yet. I think that. A lot of times uh, we struggle receiving help because we think it's a form of humility to say, well, I appreciate that, but that's okay. When it's actually the opposite. When you learn to receive, it's another level of humility that takes place in your life. Receiving help is a lot more humble than saying, I appreciate, thank you, but I, 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 I don't need it right now. And so I think that the challenge for us is you can never overgive or be over nice. It's impossible to be that. It can be rejected, but it doesn't mean you stop giving. Somebody, somebody will let you hold the door for them. Somebody will let you take their groceries in the house. Somebody will do that. And you know what? You keep giving until you get to that person. And you keep offering until you get to that person. Um, And so it's not a personal thing. Um, I think everybody's different with that. But um, as long as your spirit is right and as long as your motives is right, as long as your motives are right and your intentionality is in place, you keep doing that. For me, um, uh, if you can make my life easier, I'd be an idiot for not accepting that. If you can do something to make my life easier and less less cumbersome, why wouldn't I accept that? I don't know if people view it as that, but that's how I view it. If I don't have to hold the door and you can hold it and I can just roll in, oh, I'm good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great place. Yes, that's very helpful. Thanks. Let me, let me take that tangent one step deeper beyond actions to words. I'll never forget sitting at a bar in the 70s with my grandpa and my cousin Mike. Nearby, a man in a wheelchair was having trouble getting the bartender's attention. So Gramps jumped into action. Bartender, he blurted out. My friend here, the invalid, wants a drink. Instantly, Mike intervened, advising Gramps that we use the word disabled, not invalid. Not retreating an inch, Gramps assured him. Mike, I said, 
My friend, the invalid. His intent was pure gold, but his wording came up short. David, are there any thoughts you care to share on words that offend? Well, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask this question to uh, because I can't be offended. I'm just, you you can't offend me because I don't take things personally like that. Um, I remember growing up, my mom's the youngest of 18 kids, and so um, that's a lot of family. And um, I remember, and they were from the South, and they would call me, my mom's name is Cremella, and they would say, that's Cree's boy, that's a cripple boy. He's the cripple boy. And that's what the terminology was back then. I didn't take that personally like a negative thing, like, you know, oh, my God, they called me the cripple guy um, because they loved me. Um, and like, like Scott said, he said, my friend. And so his intent was to help his friend. It wasn't to belittle him or make him feel that way. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, there's so that whole thing about um, uh, labels and stuff changes so much that you don't know what to do. And that's an unfortunate thing. Or you don't know what to say. Um, it always helps if you know their name. If you don't, um, then you can kind of navigate around and ask them, you know, what, what should I say? Or how do you say this? Um, but in general, um, I think people um, in wheelchairs and people who have physical challenges, um, you know, just don't call it, just don't call them an invalid or cripple. You know, I think I think everything else is kind of OK. And hey, my friend's here in a wheelchair. Can you help him out? Uh, my friend can't walk. Uh, can you help him out? I help her out. That kind of thing. I think that the one thing that I don't want anyone to ever do is let semantics keep you from being kind. It should never get to that. And, you know, you'd be offended. You'd be mad then at me if that's what it takes. But I'm going to be doing something kind for you. My intent is to do something to bless you. And we can't allow for potential um, uh, feelings to be hurt to change what we do and stuff like that. I just, I, I just think that's unfortunately where we are in society right now. And um, I don't have the bandwidth in my brain to know every word I'm supposed to say and not say. I, and you know what? I don't have time. I don't have time to um, navigate through that. So, I, you know, that's just where I feel about that. <laughs> I think if you treat people with respect, I think respect goes way past name and everything else. And people know when you respect them. And, and people know when you are talking down to them. And people know all of that. And you can feel that. And so if everything is done in love and respect, there are people in the diversity world that I vehemently disagree with on a number of things. But there's such mutual respect for, for, for me with them and, and them with me um, that they will quote me in some of their talks knowing that I disagree with their position. But there's a respect that came from that, you know, because I treat them with respect and love, and we can disagree. That doesn't mean that I hate you or anything like that. And that's different than where we are right now. Sports and teamwork can really teach us a lot about life. Can you give an example of how lessons learned through basketball have carried over into your life? All right, so... Let's talk a little bit about uh, vision projecting. I think that's the, the terminology that, that we'll, we'll use. And so um, there's something, I'm going to use a basketball analogy because that's what I know the most. There's something in basketball called a practice plan. A practice plan is a daily account of the two hours of practice that you have. 
and is really detailed in terms of down to the, the minute on all the things that you're going to try to accomplish. Now, that practice plan is tied into your overall plan for the entire season. So that's the forward vision that you have. That's the end game that you have in mind, that there are certain things that you want to accomplish throughout the year. And today is one of those days. And so what I would do with our practice plan, at the end of practice, I would meet meet with my staff. We would go over what we did that day in practice. And we would take a look and see that we accomplished the goals for that day. If not, we started the practice plan for the next day and we continue to work on that. And the reason I say that is that in life, we don't do that for some reason. We should, it goes back to the reflection statement again. That was a form of reflecting for us as coaches. We have a practice plan. We know that, the, that our goal is to teach uh, the 2-2-1 press. All right. And so that's our ultimate goal for the end of the season to be a really great pressing team. Well, we've got steps that we have to take to get there. And our individual practice plans will be built in such a way to make that happen. But if you don't stop and if you don't stop and review on a daily basis what you've actually accomplished, you don't know where you are in your process. And so the importance of knowing the end game, knowing what you're trying to get to relative to where you are today is huge. Uh, It takes a little time. Uh, It takes some transparency and honesty to say, well, we had terrible practice today. We didn't get anything done. We just wasted two hours. It happens. Okay. But you have another day to practice. But if you have the end game, your purpose in mind, and if that's what drives you, it all of a sudden makes your individual or current situation not such a big deal. Man, that sounds really tedious. But I'm not suggesting it's trivial. Firmly grabbing each and every rung as the fireman ascends a ladder on a burning building is tedious, but it's not trivial. Yet every so often they'll glance to the top and they'll never look down. Is that the level of focus you're talking about? So, uh, you know, the ability to look um, beyond, beyond your goal um, allows for you to really successfully get to the point of your goal. And it, and it allows for you to have direction. It, it really it keeps you from, from getting bogged down in the minutia of, of the moment. And because you can see, I've got to get to that right there. I've got to get to that point right there. And so that's my focus now. My focus is not down. My focus is always up. And when you have that focus, I think it's a big difference. You know, when everything goes smoothly, it's just a matter of focus and discipline. Execution, execution. and then. Out of nowhere, an injury or something pops up. If only we didn't have to deal with adversity, right? One of the things in terms of dealing with adversity, um, there's this thing called a flagrant foul. And I love to talk about flagrant fouls. Flagrant fouls are designed to keep you from scoring. But it's interesting what happens. The person in the game who is the recipient of the flagrant foul gets two shots in the ball. So what was meant to keep you from scoring actually creates opportunities for you and your team to score. And so on the other side of adversity, on the other side of obstacles, is the ability to score. And you need to, you need to make the commitment in your life to keep scoring. Because if you keep scoring, so for me, graduating from high school, that was a score. Graduating from college, that was a score. Working in the bank, that was a score. 
getting an MBA, that was a score. So I'm continuing to score in the face of adversity. That's how you win. Adversity wins. Adversity wins then. And so you negate the ability of adversity to do what it's intended to do by you winning, by you scoring. And, and because circumstances were never meant to control you, you were always meant to control circumstances, always. So adversity doesn't define you, but it can influence the road you take to becoming who you are. David, your readers likely concluded that your entire adult life was dedicated to living on purpose. Yet in reality, at age 50, you're caught completely off guard by life's most rudimentary question. What was I born to do? Mm -hmm. How did you grapple with that question, and how did you eventually answer it? That, that's a great point, um, because I never viewed, I didn't know that that was what purpose was really about, like what I was born to do. I didn't understand that, and that helped, that helped to frame it. That helped to frame it in such a way that I could understand, like, okay, my purpose must be tied to what I was born to do. Anything outside of that, I'm not equipped to do. Okay? I'm equipped for that purpose. I'm equipped for what I was born to do. And so the sooner I can kind of figure that out or whenever that happens, then I'm going to really be fulfilled. I think that um, purpose and fulfillment becomes easy when you understand it's what you were born to do because you're gifted and equipped to do that. You're really not gifted and equipped to do anything else at that same measure, if that makes sense. And so when I'm asked a question in an interview process um, with a Fortune 500 company by an HR person, and it, it, was, it actually was a statement, he said to me, David, my job is to plug you into this company so that you are doing what you were born to do. And once that statement was made to me, I began to think about, well, wait a minute. What if what I was born to do is not meant to be at this company? What if what I was born to do is something else? I've got to search and find that. And I still believe that there is a relationship between your natural giftings and your purpose. Because you're equipped a particular way to fulfill that. And you're not going to get a new set of equipment. You're just not, you're just not going to. And so that question becomes pivotal. You know, what, what was I born to do? And I also believe that the answer to that question is going to be outside of your benefit. What was I born to do? It's going to, whatever you were born to do is going to impact the lives of other people. It's not going to be just for you. Your commitment to focus on abilities, not disabilities, is inspirational. Is there a message there for those in your audiences not in a wheelchair? The definition of, of insanity, in my mind, is to spend time thinking about focusing on what you can't do. You, you can't do it anyway. So, so why, why are you spending time on that? So focus on the things that you can do. Everybody has limitations. Everybody has giftings. There are some things that you cannot do. But there's plenty that you can do. So if you focus on that, you, you can accomplish a ton. And then you, you're, um, that whole fulfillment purpose thing comes back in the line because you're doing what you can do. And once you can figure out what it is that you can do, 
do that. I mean, it's amazing. I, I don't I don't spend a lot of time when I was coaching. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to teach a guy how to dunk. Because I couldn't. That would be a waste of my time. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't show you how to dunk. Right? Why spend time on that? And so focus on the things that you're able to do. Focus on possibilities, not impossibilities. Everything that was Everything that was poss- everything that is possible at some point was impossible. At some point. It seems like there's really a balance between learning from others without comparing ourselves to others. That's the challenge. The challenge is how do we glean and learn from others knowing that their journey and their purpose is not mine? That's the real challenge. How do I, how do I learn from someone that does something similar to what I do, knowing that we don't have the same purpose? They may be similar, but they're not the same. How do I stay true to what I'm supposed to do as I'm learning from someone else? And that's where we, have to, we really have to be committed to not making comparisons. You lose that game every time. You will never win the game of comparison. You will lose that every single time because there's always going to be something that I can't relate to with you. Always. I totally agree. And that kind of leads to the simple truth of those who compare themselves amongst themselves are not wise. And, you know, I'm actually learning that in my life right now. I've always been able to hit the golf ball a long way and well beyond most. But age is creeping up. So in one sense, I'm thrilled to see my sons now smacking it beyond me. But I'm still a competitor. So the key is for me not to compete against them at their game, but compete at my level. And if I just play my game, they still haven't beat me yet, and I'm still ahead of them on the scorecard. Comparing myself to others is not the solution. And that's a great analogy, is that, you know, and that's what life will, when we talk about help and, and that kind of stuff, um, over time, and this is, this is one of the great qualities of leadership, is your ability to replace people based on where they are now in their skill set. Michael Jordan, over his career, as he got older, uh, he wasn't doing as much driving. and other, He was doing a lot more jump shooting, different things. He wasn't at his peak anymore, but he still added value to the game. And it's important for leaders to understand that is that as long as they can continue to add value, it may not be at the level it was before, but it's still value. You've got to find a way to use that. You have to find a way to use that. You are not a good leader if you, don't, if you can't do that. Because then you're throwing away resources. You're, you're getting rid of untapped resources. And that's a challenge. That's a little sidebar on leadership. David, you've been such an inspiration in my life and the life of my family as we've journeyed together through graduation ceremonies and weddings, through the ups and the downs. It has been a joy, my brother. So thanks for sharing these valuable insights with our listeners uh, who I'm sure have been inspired by your pursuit of purposeful living. God bless you as you continue to enrich the lives of countless people through your actions and your words just through the man that you are in the world. How true is you've noted that people will forget 
what we do, but we'll long remember who we are. And in both regards, David Cooks, your legacy will be a rich one indeed. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed to you and your quest for purposeful living.